Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Her hair was green as seaweed. Her skin was blue and pale. I loved the girl with all my heart, but I did not care for the other part. Above her waist was just my taste, but the rest of her was a tail. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host, James, misquoting Great Big Sea lyrics daily. Did I misquote that? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Her hair was made of seaweed. Her skin was blue and pale. Her face it was a work of art. I love that girl with all my heart, but I only liked the upper part. I didn't like the tail. Ah, okay. Well, meh. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Above her waist was just my taste, but the rest of rest her, of was, her a was a fish. There we go. That That's it. That's the tail end of one of the verses. Yes. But hey, and I'm leaving all this in, by the way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, yes, in case you couldn't tell, <laughs> this week we are talking about you know, water spirits, sea yeah. spirits, various half-people spirit things that live in the water. <laughs> yeah, so we're kind of making a bridge here. We are wanting to go ahead and start doing an arc on some cryptid mythology, both European, and then later we're going to come across the Big Lake to American, North American cryptids as well. In discussing on which we wanted to tackle first, considering we just covered both harpies and sirens, it felt a really good and smooth transition to mermaids and others. So again, with the aquatic quasi people, demi people, I guess, demi human. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, in mythology, they're typically not considered people. They're considered spirits, spirits. or fae or... Semi-divine in a lot of cases, too. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. So they have human form, kind of like a dragon would. They have a humanoid form. But again, they appear half human, half aquatic. They can take full terrestrial form sometimes if they choose. We figured this would be a smooth transition, as it were. As smooth a transition as we ever do. <laughs> yeah, this is fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so there were several similar creatures or spirits that we decided to sort of lump together because the lines between them tend to blur a little bit. It gets a little murky into the water. Yeah. So we're <laughs> going to start off with mermaids. Right. Because sirens transitioning into mermaids was something that we mentioned in the Harpy episode. Right. And then we're also going to touch on some of the other mermaid-ish creatures so we're going to talk on nixies selkies and kelpies and how they've been portrayed in games specifically in DD, because we're still working on expanding our libraries and that's the bulk of what we have what we have available <laughs> to us yeah and i can already foresee we're going to have several tangents where oh, yeah. we are this is gonna where be we're going to be tying in other similar creatures and bouncing around and everything. So let's just go ahead and get started. Yeah, let's batten down the hatches and let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so coming through, I love diving into lore for old mythology and stuff like this. If I had more time, I would do a lot more study into lore because it would be a lot of fun. So the earliest I found for mermaids come from one of two places, but they are both from old world Phoenicia. And it's either the Philistines or the Syrians from either modern day Lebanon or modern day Syria. One was Dagon, and that was from the Philistines. And he was a sea storm deity. And again, he had the lower half. His legs were still legs, but they were scaly. So he was kind of like a half fish, fish man type thing. Not typically what we envision as a mermaid. But, you know, modern concept of what a mermaid is, and I have a hard time saying this lady's name, but was the goddess Adargatis. 
and she was from the Phoenicians. And again, the Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean from about 1000 BCE to about 700, 500 BCE when the Greeks kind of took over. And she was a patron deity of one of the Phoenicians' main series of Tyr. I kind of wonder if that's where the god Tyr comes from in D&D lore. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. That god Tyr, I'm pretty sure, is based off of the Norse god Tyr. Okay, that would make sense, because the spelling of the names are exactly the same. So that would make sense. I wasn't sure if it came from there, but Norse would make a lot more sense for modern D&D, yes. But again, this goddess was a fertility goddess as well as a protector and a goddess of love. So she had two forms that she worshipped. One, fish were sacred to her because they were fertility and growth and crops. Doves were sacred to her as well because they were symbols of love. And according to her story, she had a shepherd that was her lover and somehow she accidentally killed him. I was not able to find details on how she accidentally killed him. But in remorse, she threw herself into the ocean, as I guess one would do. And the ocean and the universe itself, because she was so beautiful, would not mar her beauty or kill her. So it only transformed the lower half of her into a fish so she could swim. And this is where we get that, you know, top half person, bottom half fish kind of visual today. Now, again, the Phoenicians were the main political power and trading power throughout the Mediterranean. The next big nation to step up were the nations in the islands of Greece. And that's where we kind of get what we call the mermaids or the tritons today. So those who have seen the, the old cartoon, The Little Mermaid, that's not Poseidon under the water, that's Triton. And he was the son of the god of the sea. I forget who the Titan was that. His wife was also, I forget her name. It would be Oceanus, wouldn't Oceanus, it? Oceanus, yes, you're correct. Well done. I am terrible with names. <laughs> so yeah, Triton was the son of Oceanus, the Titan of the seas. And his children, again, were that same half fish, half person. There were mermen and people, and all of them were known as the Tritons. So again, that's where that lore goes. Yeah, one of the earliest conflations of the sirens, turning them into half person, half fish, uh, refers to them as tritonesses. Yeah, exactly. And going through with that, again, as we discussed last week, the sirens were actually, you know, first in Greek mythology, half bird, half woman, or, or even mostly bird with the face of a woman. And then they slowly became more and more human. The transition of the siren to more of a mermaid type kind of comes across throughout the Middle Ages. Again, a lot of the texts were lost. A lot of the reading was broken up because of trade. About 800 to 1200, sirens became associated with evil, with temptresses, with demons, because again, they had this song that would lure men against their will. And so drawings and depictions of the sirens at this point, instead of having the feet and body of a bird, became scaly as they were considered more draconic, more dragon-like to embody this demonic visage. And again, from that where they were scaly and had more demonic, and then there was other ones where instead of just a single snake's tail, they had multiple tails, kind of like a hydra. This came back into one. And the visual representation became less dragon, more fish, because sirens are in the ocean. And that kind of melded from some sort of sea dragon to a fish to the modern picture of the mermaid siren that we see today. Though, again, in lore, sirens and mermaids are different. The sirens themselves are almost always destructive. If we were going to put them on a D&D alignment scale, they would almost always be neutral evil or chaotic evil. Mermaids can be beneficial, they can be playful. They were both signs of good luck and bad luck to various seafarers, especially during the New World trade with like the Dutch East Indies. So you'd put a mermaid on your prow to help 
calm the seas for good seas, but then if you saw a mermaid in the water, she was likely to tempt you to jump in and join her, drown you, and possibly eat you. So again, the mermaids were more mischievous, more fae-like, as we consider them today. So again, them on an alignment chart, I would probably put them fairly solidly chaotic neutral, maybe even true neutral, neutral evil on probably their darkest aspects. Yeah, um, just to tap in to D&D in 5e, merfolk in the monster manual are listed as just straight neutral. Okay, and that makes sense again, because they are playful, they can be beneficial, they can be malevolent, it really depends on the individual and mood. And I like that for my monsters, a monster should be able to cover the entire gambit for most cases. Yeah, and in D&D specifically, there is that malevolent, malicious type of merfolk in the marrow. They were initially merfolk and then they were afflicted by this demonic energy, I guess it would be, this influence that ended up transforming them. I believe it was through Demogorgon. Okay. And then they became this chaotic, evil, malicious race. Well, I could see that. I mean, again, that's a good corruption story. As lore and stories and nonfiction goes, I love stories of corruption and redemption. They just always kind of sang to me as, you know, that whole personality shift and change. That something so profound happened that it changed the character because I love multifaceted characters. And so that is totally understandable. And if you were going to add these to your thing, you could have some sort of fell or demonic influence. You could have them that they are just upset by their ecology, you know, being encroached or destroyed. They could be solely benevolent, helping your sailors or helping the seaside people. Maybe your town or your village has struck some sort of deal with the merfolk. And so they kind of herd fish towards your fisheries. And so now you've got plenty of food and great trade. And so now this town prospers. Inversely, maybe you've angered the merfolk and now they are driving the fish away from your thing. And so the people are suffering and now your party has to go and either combat or otherwise and join and treaty these merfolk to try to resolve this. Again, you can do a lot with mermaids, not just on the high seas. You can do a lot, even shoreline with them, which I think can give a lot of possibilities. Also, too, with old lore, where they can take a humanoid form for a time. So you can actually have them integrated into your town or city as well. Yeah, getting back to talking about coastal areas, that's where you're going to primarily run into these encounters with merfolk. Yes. Because humanoids typically live on the land, and so you're going to have the interaction between the folk on the land and the folk in the sea. That is where that interaction is going to happen. Absolutely. And again, and that's why you saw a lot of them, especially, like I said, during the colonization period, I guess we'll call it, where a lot of your mermaid lore came because the Caribbean, while beautiful and expansive, is not terribly deep. And there is a lot of ocean and there is a lot of community through there. And so it would make sense for this lore to flourish in that type of area, especially like an archipelago or something like that. An archipelago? Archipelago, yes. Words (laughs) that you never hear but always read. Yes. (laughs) And to speak on that, you know, there are historical accounts, if you want to call them that, of mermaid sightings. And one of the most notable ones is attributed to Christopher Columbus during his explorations of the Caribbean. And just to back up a little bit, talking about the word mermaid, the first instance of mermaids in an English context predates 
modern English by quite a lot, actually. Yeah. One of the earliest documents that specifically lays out this whole transition of siren to mermaid was a book called the uh, Liber Monstrorum de Diversis Generibus, yes. which was, which was well written... Yeah, I'm getting to brush up on my Latin a little bit. Written by an English priest in the 7th or 8th century. And in the book, they referred to sirens as marenae pulai, or sea girls, whose beauty and song are alluring to seafarers, and they possess the scaly lower body of a fish. There's also recording Chaucer of Canterbury Tales. Yeah, Chaucer is the first documented instance of the word mermaid yes in english in the nun's priest's tale from roughly 1390 now also a side note with chaucer he is also the first to document that he likes big butts and cannot lie i will invite you all to go ahead and look that up it's quite fascinating <laughs> is that the miller's wife's tale i don't know which tale it is it might be the miller's wife's tale but yeah what the winch is thick Yes. Yeah, but yeah, it's a fun read. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there is another variant on the mermaid. It is primarily French, also goes through Luxembourg and the Low Countries, so the Netherlands and Belgium, called the Melusine. The most common depiction of a Melusine is the logo for Starbucks, that twin-tailed mermaid. Yeah. And again, that twin tail actually goes back talking about the god Dagon, and that is kind of more what Dagon looks, where each leg was an individual tail, but it was definitely like also a leg. So yeah. Right. And that was also the description of Triton in Greek mythology as well. So there is definitely a connection, a stylistic connection there, whether there is an actual intentional one, cultural borrowing there. I think it's too close both in terms of description and in geography to not be a connection. But, Absolutely. But I don't have any documentation to support that claim. That is one thing I love looking about cultures and art, especially where they intermingle and kind of collide, is you can see where depictions of story and art carry from one to the other to the other. Again, this is a complete rabbit trail, but I do want to throw this in that one of my absolute favorites is I enjoy medieval Arabic art, especially with the geometric patterns and the tiles and the mosaics. And you can kind of follow where that goes through. And if you look at a lot of art from southern Spain, you see where that's carried over across North Africa into southern Spain, where the Moors had conquered southern Spain for a long time. So you take that where I grew up in central California and you could find the Spanish missions. They brought those same decorative styles with them. And so now, even in California, you still have these same kind of mosaic geometric pattern tilings that is still culturally artistic, even modern day, that tie back to the monasteries and the missions, to Spain, to the Moors, to Arabia from medieval times. And you can watch how this art has just kind of carried through all these different cultures. You can see this with stories. And again, with mermaids, you can kind of see where it's gone from antiquity to modern day coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there are some people who tie the concept of the Melusine to a pre-Christian Celtic water spirit or water goddess, specifically referencing stories about changelings. Right. And originally, the Lady of the Lake from the Arthurian tales who spirits away the infant Lancelot and raises him, the Lady of the Lake is a Melusine. Oh, I did not realize that. Yes. Okay. Moist and bent loving scimitars? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And from what I was able to tell, uh, 
the etymology on Melusine is a little bit unclear. Some people are leaning towards that it comes from the Latin word melus, meaning melodious or pleasant sounding, or that it might tie back to a series of folk tales referring to the leader of a band of fairies who is attributed with building Roman edifices across the French countryside known as Mère Lucine. Okay, I kind of like that. And I still like how, again, even with modern mermaids, while they are still something completely different, they did wind up picking out this melodious voice that can be enthralling or tempting or just captivating. And again, this was something they kind of borrowed or acquired from the siren. And even in the modern day, you know, the whole Little Mermaid, that was her thing. And she had a wonderful singing voice that Ursula the Sea Witch wanted to take. And again, this is still something borrowed from older cultures, which is a lot of fun. Absolutely. And that is the unifying thread that ties most of these creatures together is that charming, enchanting voice right? that can enthrall usually men because they are typically feminine in depiction. Right. One thing that I read said that it tied back to the Greek concept that the element of water was a feminine element. And therefore, because these are all water spirits... They are all inherently feminine by default. This makes sense. Also, in early, early Greek depictions, there were some male sirens. But again, going back, they were supposed to be monstrous. And in art, the male body was divine and near perfect. And so a monstrous male would be a little off-putting to the Greeks. And again, the water spirits being feminine by nature. So yeah, they kind of got shoved over there because of Greek, I guess, cultural philosophy, you'd say. Yeah, I could see that. That said, there is absolutely no reason why there can't be mermen with an awesome voice. I mean, you could have, you know, who's, oh, I can't remember the singer, the guy that sings the From Misty Mountains from the Hobbit movie. Yeah. Um, that bass vocalist. I mean, the ladies all love that voice. That would absolutely be a merman voice and just be like, <laughs> all right. So we have the mermaids and we've talked about some transitions. So what if you don't have a coastal town? What are we going to do? Yeah, so mermaids by and large are, at least from a mythology standpoint, all bound to saltwater coastal areas. So I think that the next logical transition for us would be to shift from mermaids into nixies. Yes. Nixies are typically river spirits. They are predominant in Germanic folklore as opposed to English folklore, but there are many English spirits that have a very similar feel, that have a very similar purpose. They do have a lot of overlap with Kelpies in a lot of their various little things. And we'll touch on those in a little bit. I was going to say, there's absolutely no Germanic influence in England or the UK at all. None. Absolutely not. Never. None. Never. <laughs> So the Nixies are interesting as they have more forms. One, you're going to find these kind of in bogs, rivers, lakes, and streams. So these are very much freshwater creatures. They are similar in many ways to the mermaid. One of the big differences that I find kind of fascinating is not only can they take a terrestrial human form, but they could also take an equine form of that of a horse. Yes, and the term Nixie or Nix is actually drawn from the old Norse word Nikr, meaning river horse. Not a hippopotamus. That's completely different. I think they would get mad if you called one of them a hippo. Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't do that. They would just drown you faster. <laughs> that said, the Nixies tend to have a slightly more 
gentle spirit than the mermaids from what i have found again i was trying to look up some of their older lore and temperament and they can be temptresses or tempters as well but not as malicious they didn't do it to outright kill people or to eat them they would just quote carry them away so perhaps those people lived a happy life drinking milk from a saucer like the kittens that all got to go to the farm when i was little (laughs) maybe one of the things that i read was specifically in terms of Nixies and Kelpies, that they are personifications for stories to warn children about the perils of fast-moving streams and rapids. That makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, it can look very calm, it can look very enticing to go near it, but if you fall in, you can very easily and very quickly get pulled in and drown. That makes a lot of sense. Now I kind of want Nixies. Again, I grew up I grew up actually in Central California. It's a very dry, arid area, but we do have large canals that are state run to carry water from the mountains to the farms and fields. So you do have these canals that would run through the cities. They also were dumping grounds for a lot of trash, which is unfortunate. Fresno gets very hot in the summer. You have 10 to 14 days a year, that's over 105 degrees. You have about 30 days a year, that's over 100 degrees. It gets extremely hot there. And so these canals, which seem kind of smooth and nice, would seem like a great place to take a dip. The problem is, is there is generally a strong undercurrent and there's enough trash, you know, bins, shopping carts, old car fenders, you know, all kinds of stuff that it's very easy to get trapped and snagged under these. And so in the city I grew up in Fresno, several children each year would hop into these canals and drown. And so that was always the public service announcement. And things I heard growing up is you don't swim in the canal, stay away from the canal. So hearing about a Nixie saying that it's coming out of the canal and going to steal you if you get too close, I could totally see that happening. Right. Yeah. That said too, but again, these Nixies could be beneficiaries or patrons to their local community as well if they were, you know, again, enticed to do so. So again, taking this humanoid form or taking this horse form, I'm sure, again, you could tie in a lot of mythology with people, you know, following a horse or maybe becoming a symbol or patron of a city, kind of benefiting people, bringing in fish, bringing in trade, having, you know, a great singer. Maybe your bard is a Nixie in this town and she is enthralling all kinds of people into the town. And maybe the worst of the worst, she kind of lures into the lake where they go and drink milk from a saucer later on. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. From what I was able to tell, the depictions of Nixies as sort of water sprites that are very playful and they love the music and song, that is all attributed to Jacob Grimm, one of the brothers from Grimm's Fairy Tales. They did a lot of good work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the brothers Grimm and was it Hans Christian Andersen? Yes. They are the ones who are responsible for us having most of the Germanic folk tales in writing. Correct. Because they went through and collected all of these stories. Right. And so one of the quotes that he wrote down was, Like the sirens, the Nixie by her song draws listening youth to herself and then into the deep. So I read that and my initial thought was, that sounds an awful lot like the story of the Pied Piper. It really does. Like an aquatic Pied Piper? Well, because specifically male Nixies are depicted as being very comely, very persuasive. And they are actually capable of taking on a fully human form as opposed to the females who are almost always depicted as being 
torso of a human, tail of a fish. Gotcha. No, I like that. And again, and not- the Vesa River does run through the town of Hamun, where the Pied Piper story takes place. And so it is not that far of a stretch for me to say that it was originally a Nixie story where a male Nixie came into town and took care of the rats because he was able to do that and they didn't want to pay up. So he decided to steal all their children. And that's exactly what a face spirit would do. That's exactly what a face spirit would do. Yes. I love that. Well done. That is now headcanon. I love it. The other thing that is absolutely headcanon for me, and if you want to do kind of more of a modernish D&D type setting or even tabletop, this doesn't have to be specifically D&D. This could be system agnostic. But you talk about these playful water spirits that love music, that are in fresh water, that are kind of closest to maybe the siren or the mermaid in saltwater. Nixies in New Orleans. Okay would be the perfect place for them. Just all over. You've got magic, you've got music, you've got a ton of culture, especially with, you know, again, the Caribbean and the French. They would be perfectly at home there. Actually, I think that a Melusine would probably be a little more. Okay. As it is a French-themed thing. Fair enough. And there is a French novel from, I think, the 15th century talking about a creature whose name is Melusine, who walks around as a person and who they find out is actually this Melusine, this serpent or fish-tailed person, because they get suspicious of her behavior and someone spies on her while she is bathing on a Saturday night and sees her with her two serpent tails. Okay. So yeah, I think that all things equal, given the strong French influence in New Orleans, I would personally, I would say that a Melusine would fit a little bit better. I could also see a Melusine, especially where you do have, you know, the swamps and the bayous and stuff. So the more serpentine aspects could work. Now again, New Orleans, more than just French, you do have a lot of Portuguese and Spanish and stuff like that, but less dramatic. So I could see both the Melusine would also work very easily though, but definitely this fresh or brackish water spirit, very tempting, very magical, very musical, again, would fit wonderfully in that area. Speaking of brackish waters, we kind of get into, again, some of our more British type, and this is kind of where we get our Kelpies and our Selkies. Yeah, this would be the transition from Nixies into Kelpies. Yeah. So like Nixies, Kelpies are also capable of changing their physical shape. They also have an equine form. You know, they're able to take the form of a horse. The main difference between Kelpies and Nixies in their horse form, as far as I can tell, is that Kelpies are typically a dark horse, whereas Nixies are typically a white horse. Okay. But they do have a lot of similarities in their abilities and what they're used for in the stories. And of course, the Scandinavians definitely have a strong influence on the cultures of especially Northern Britain. Absolutely. And with this white horse thing too, with the Scandinavian, I am honestly surprised because a lot of depictions, they do look very much like a unicorn. I am surprised that that was never breached in any direction either. Because, well, I mean, the unicorn itself is obviously a magical creature, but to try to take the form or the appearance of a unicorn, I could almost imagine that happening. Yeah. But if we're talking about a mythical creature, the depiction of a unicorn as a horse with a horn is a fairly modern contrivance. This is also true. The mythical unicorn, the unicorn that you see depicted quite often in medieval iconography, it has cloven hooves. So it's got like goat hooves. 
It has a lion's tail. So it is a little more chimeric than okay. just being a horse with a horn. A horse with a horn. It is <laughs> one of the earliest depictions or accounts of a unicorn is actually from Julius Caesar in his letters from Gaul, where he describes it as being goat-like. Huh. How do I miss that? How in the world? I love the history of Julius Caesar. I love Roman history. I love the end of the Republic. How the hell have I missed that? That was one of the passages that we had to translate in Ah, my summer Latin class in college. That's crazy. Now I'm going to have to go find that. (laughs) But back to Selkies. Back to Kelpies. We haven't gotten to Selkies yet. Kelpies, Kelpies, Kelpies. So Kelpies, as we said, are predominantly in an equine form. They are capable of taking on a humanoid form. They were usually female, but not always. And their their whole shtick was to charm people to come into the water and drown them. Now, for me, if you haven't noticed, I tend to get my Kelpies and my Selkies mixed up. Now, you say that Kelpies were generally more malevolent, or they would take men in to drown them. Were the Selkies ones that were more inclined to take them as partners or spouses or yes. lovers? Okay. Yes. They're the ones I'm a little more familiar with. Selkies are the one on this list that is not inherently malevolent in oh. medieval stories. So you're saying they're boring? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. And we'll I, get to them in a minute. Okay. But yeah, again, these Kelpies tend to be referenced with changelings. You get a lot more influence for your British face stories, the face stories that a lot of people can relate to or more familiar with. So they are going to be trickster spirits. They are going to be a little darker. They are more likely to steal or exchange things. Again, you have the changelings where they might steal children. Talking about where the Nixies were, you know, a tale told to stay away from the rivers. I could see the same going for the Kelpies as, you know, stay away from the ocean water so you don't, you know, go in too deep or get drawn in or get tangled up in the seaweed or whatever like that. I could see that being. Well, another thing is that, you know, Kelpies are also predominantly freshwater. Oh, are they freshwater? Yeah, they are predominantly freshwater spirits, at least in the tales that I am able to tell, because a lot of the stories are, you know, based around rivers and locks. Okay. So they would be inland bodies of water that are predominantly freshwater. Gotcha. Like I said, I've always had a hard time keeping the two separate. I always, kind of mushed them up into one in my brain. The silky kelp. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the Kelpie stories actually involve getting them into their horse form and coercing them into some sort of service. So apparently, if you were able to place a halter upon a Kelpie in their horse form, and that halter happened to be marked with the sign of the cross, they would be unable to change from their horse form, and they would be obliged to be obedient to you until the halter was taken off. So this goes back into old school D&D when you did a polymorph or change self, you got the stat block you picked. (laughs) Right. And some of them would have just a bit and bridle. Some of them would have a saddle as well. And they're looking like this very tame ready-to-ride horse to lure you into climbing onto its back, and then it would ensnare you and take you into the water and drown you. Dive off the cliff and, oh, oh yeah. Those, what were those old diving horses back from the uh, early 1900s? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Now, one of the things that I also found is that apparently if you came up to one of these Kelpies and you were able to remove the halter from them, it would basically function as an exorcism. And they would just collapse into their constituent plant matter. Interesting. And not only that, but 
the bridle would have magical properties. And if you were to brandish it towards a person, it would transform that person into a horse or a pony. That's kind of insidious. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It really is. Yeah, I'm just going to politely back away from that one and say, you know, consenting adults, we're not going to judge too much. Absolutely judge for styles and points, but don't look down on it. Just, yeah, okay, good, well done. Good, good idea, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I was also able to find Kelpies were one of the few that actually has lore on how to kill them. Because turning them into plant matter isn't dead? <laughs> well, they were apparently vulnerable to silver. Okay. And also iron, specifically okay. heated iron. Heated iron, okay. And again, this ties back into a lot of that Fey myth with the silver. And if they are considered an evil or malevolent spirit, then a, quote, a pure metal would do it as well. And so this ties us back to where we were talking about our lycanthropes. There could be other culturally pure metals or things. So if you had, you know, a Mesoamerican or Native American Kelpie, something like obsidian or silver even could work where these were also considered pure or divine metals as well. Right. All right. So let's go ahead and... Real quick, get into Selkies as the last okay. subcategory on our list. The not evil sea creature. The not evil ones. <laughs> Selkies are a little bit different from the rest. They are sometimes conflated with mermaids, but in a different direction. They are actually technically Antherians because they are seals that can take a human form. Okay. So like the inverse of a lycanthrope. Right. And basically the way that it works is whenever they come out of the sea and onto land, they can shed their seal skin, you know, just slip out of it like a wet shirt. Wetsuit. Like a, yeah, like a wetsuit. And they just walk around as a human. And then whenever they're ready to return to the sea, they put their seal skin back on and hop into the water. Okay. There was an account that is likely apocryphal but claimed that there was a certain subgroup of Scandinavian individuals who were known to wear a lot of seal skins and, you know, go around in seal skin canoes. And they did a lot of diving stuff. And that this story is likely tied to them because, you know, whenever your seal skins got soaked with water, you would row into shore, you would peel them off and lay them on a rock to dry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That said, if you see a naked ladder last walking down the beach, they just, well, could be a selkie. And according to mythology, they are capable of marrying and interbreeding with humans. Right. Quite often, the children would be considered just human, but they would often have like webbed fingers or toes. Again, I can see this as an explanation for a natural process. You know, if there is some sort of, you know, webbed hands is something that happens from time to time. If yeah, you had particularly a small community, something where you start developing something like Founder's Effect, if it's a small number of genetic profiles within the pool, this is going to happen more frequently. And so, you know, instead of, oh, you know, little Bobby's a little weird and has some webbed fingers and we have to try to connect that or let him live with it. Well, his mom was a selkie. Yeah. And there are, I can't for the life of me recall the name of the noble family, but there was a noble family in one of these coastal areas I can't remember if this was a Scottish coastal or an Irish coastal, but one of these noble families where this was a recurring genetic trait and they claimed to be descended from a Selkie. As you do, because it's obviously not a genetic malady, it's we're special. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, no, I like it. 
And in the stories, what ends up happening is a human is walking along and sees the Selkie come out of the ocean and peel off their seal skin and lay it aside and go on their merry way. And they will take the seal skin and they will hide it so that they cannot return to the sea. And they will in turn, you know, seduce them and marry them and start a family together. And the Selkie always wants to go back to the sea, but they can't because their skin is missing. And often in the story, their children end up finding out where it is. They inform their mother that they found this thing and they don't know what it is. She goes and finds it and reclaims it so that she can then return to the sea and she will abandon the rest of her family to return to the sea. Right. In some stories, she ends up taking her children with her, but in most cases, she just abandons them and returns to the sea. I'm saying, you know, finding the swimmer and yoinking their clothes sounds like every bad, like, 70s teen movie ever. Oh, look, they're skinny dipping. We're going to steal their clothes. Ha ha ha. Teehee. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite effect in this case, but opposite but same. Right. And there are some of the Selkie stories where they are described as having fish tails and they will shed their fish tail. They'll step out of their fish tail to walk on the land like in The Little Mermaid. And then, you know, the person steals their fish tail and hides it to coerce them into a relationship. Not saying that we should condone that. We do not condone. No, we do not. We do not condone <laughs> stealing people's clothes to coerce them into a relationship. Absolutely not. That is wrong. That is wrong. And you should be ashamed of yourself for thinking about it. Exactly. So these are the aquatic creatures. And again, they cover a huge expanse of time and cultures and geography. How do we bring these to the table? What would be the best? I mean, we've thrown out some ideas and stuff like that, but how would you, would you roll these up as a monster? Do you think they'd be an NPC? How would you use these in game? Well, I'm glad that you asked. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off back at the top with Merfolk. Merfolk have been in the game for a very long time. There are lots of games that have variations on Merfolk and Sirens and what have you. You know, in Dungeons and Dragons, there are variations on Merfolk that are intended to be player characters like Tritons or Sea Elves. Actually, in certain Icelandic versions of the Selkie myth, Selkies are a type of sea elf. Okay. And so there are already options to get a more mechanically tuned, if you will, mermaid variant to play as a player character. You know, Tritons obviously drawing their terminology from, you know, Tritonesses or Tritons as in the merfolk type creatures from early Greek myth descended from King Triton. From a mechanical standpoint, in most of these games, the merfolk are the ones who are the simplest base unit of these aquatic creatures. They often no longer have this entrancing song that is an add-on that is attached to variants that are more powerful than the initial merfolk. That said, There's nothing that says that you can't add that back in, whether that is an actual charm effect or something akin to some sort of advantage on charisma based checks. So like a persuasion check, you can take that either way. Going into some of the variants, Selkies, Kelpies and Nixies have all appeared in D&D. With the exception of the Kelpie, none of them have made it past third edition. 
<laughs> talking specifically about Nixies. Nixies were shifted and drawn from a little bit more of the Grimm's fairy tales form of Nixie. They were one of the larger subcategories of sprites in third edition. I could see them conflating with those. That makes a bit of sense. Yeah, they have an innate ability to use charm person on people who enter their area. And if you fail that saving throw, you are enthralled to this Nixie for 24 hours. Okay. And during that 24 hours, they're going to put you to work. They're going to make you build stuff. They're going to put you on guard duty. They're going to make you do things that they are too small or disinclined to do. That they want the manual labor to do for them. I like this. And near the end of that 24 hours, they'll start walking you in a direction and they'll tell you, keep walking that way. (laughs) Fair enough. And you'll just keep walking that way until the end of the 24 hours when the effect expires. Now, as we've talked, the Nixies can be a bit malevolent. We've agreed on this, right? They can be, yes. Okay. And we also have examples, both in lore and in D&D things, of maybe creatures like vampires or ghouls or things like that carrying land with them so they are close to their land or their home area. So with these two things that can fly, I could see a Nixie in a tavern in human form just with a glass of water waiting for that perfect mark so they can slosh this water on them. And now they are, quote, in their domain so they can use their charm person. No, they trick them into drinking it. Oh, they have to drink. Yeah. Oh, even better. Well done. So one of the other variants on the Nixie, specifically in Scandinavian lore, one of the references to the male versions of Nixies. Mixie? Are uh, the Fossagrim. <laughs> Okay. Which translates to Man in the Rapids. Oh, that's a kind of a cool name. Fossagrim are also in 3rd edition D&D. They were in the Fiend Folio in 3rd edition. That's important because Fossagrim, Selkies, and Kelpies are all in the Fiend Folio. That means they're mean. <laughs> eh, not necessarily. Fossagrim are actually, I think they're classified as neutral good in 3rd edition. In the Fiend Folio? Yeah. I mean, they're not all fiends in the fiend folio. Oh, I thought the fiendish was all the fiends. No. Okay. They are an aquatic fae that is tied specifically to waterfalls, and they have a lot of their abilities that are tied to them standing in the rapids surrounding their waterfall. They make their lairs in the caves that are tucked in behind the waterfall. Okay. They are able to swim up the waterfall as if it were just free standing water that kind of reminds me of the ability you can get in um zelda breath of the wild i forget the culture but the fish people there and actually they are very similar to the nixies in this as they are generally aquatic and they have a lot of fish and they can travel between in and out but when you complete their quest for their area you can swim up waterfalls right yeah they will ignore anyone who is just drinking the water or bathing in the water just being very respectful of the water, but they are very aggressive towards anyone who would pollute the water or who would dam the river that feeds their waterfall. I like that. I could also see one of these that are very enterprising kind of setting up shop in the rapids, maybe where there's a lot of travelers going through solely so he can save people and collect favors. So, I mean, he's doing a good thing, yes, but he's definitely getting a benefit out of this. And so, like, he has a list of favors that people owe him that he can call in at any given point. Absolutely. Yeah. According to 3rd edition, they could move up to a 1,000 feet away from their waterfall. If they went past that, they would fall ill. And if they didn't return to their waterfall within 46 hours, they would die. Oh, wow. Okay. So like the various water spirits in their physical description, you know, they have the pale skin. 
they have this silver white hair because, you know, it's mimicking the turbulence in the water because they are specifically tied to waterfalls and they carry fine weapons. So in third edition, all the stuff that they carried was plus three masterwork. Oh, nice. And whenever they were standing in the turbulent water beneath their waterfall, they got spell resist 15, which means that if you wanted to hit them with a spell, you would have to roll a d20, add your spell attack modifier, basically. And you have to hit a 15 or higher just to even affect them with the spell. Right. And they also had fast healing five. So as long as they were standing in the turbulent water, they automatically regenerated five hit points at the start of every turn. Nice. And the kicker, if both the Fossilgrim and the person they were fighting were standing in the water, they got true strike, which meant that they got a plus 20 on all attacks against those creatures. I like it. You know, back when True Strike was good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that is the Fossilgrim. There is an obvious story hook there. You know, somebody upstream is building a dam so that they can make a reservoir for water for a town or they're, you know, building a logging camp or something and they need the water and all of that. And it's starving this waterfall and so the Fossilgrim is getting real upset about it and you roll into town and you hear about all of the trouble out at the logging camp you know there's something coming in and vandalizing the place and tearing things up and we need some plucky adventurers to go and figure out what this is and stop it yeah I like that I think these also have a lot of potential for random encounters too especially if you're going through like a wooded or forested area instead of just having you know hey you wake up and there's snakes or spiders everywhere or oh my god a bear dropped from the sky it's in the middle of your camp or here's a raiding party of orcs no you're by a river and your sentinels see you know maybe like a slightly pristine or almost celestial looking horse walking through your camp and you decide to follow your scouts go off following it, you know, or anything along those lines, or maybe they pop up. And I mean, I really would as a DM definitely try to lure your scouts because they're kind of going to be out up and away from your party anyway. So they're going to be an easier target, especially with something like charm person, but they could just say, Hey, you're too close to our area and just straight raid your campsite. Also, you can do a lot of these things. You can build a wonderful story hook with these, as we've discussed. But again, they are very available for just your traveling random encounter. You're going through the woods and they're not part of a bigger story, but they're just kind of an event for your players. Yeah, I can definitely support that. They do lend themselves very well to that sort of random encounter thing as, you know, just something that you would come across. Right. And it's different. I mean, how often have you come across sea fairies or selkies or mermaids while you're playing your games? Like I said, it's normally like orcs or boars or bears or snakes. So, I mean, it'll definitely throw your players for a loop. And I'm always excited when I get to see something new on the table as well. Now, talking a little bit about Selkies, Selkies being the other one that hasn't come past third edition, they are not considered fey. They are considered aquatic humanoids, but they are listed as having a purported fey ancestry. So it there is a fey element here. You know, they may have some elements of sea elf in there or primordial fey wild stuff going on. But again, they are considered antherians, so they are animals capable of taking a humanoid form. In third edition, they could shift between forms as a free action, but it was very specific. If they were in the water, they were in their seal form. If they were on dry land, they're in person form. Okay. 
if they're on like a beach, that area of transition between the water and the land, then they had the option. Okay. Do I take my humanoid form? Do I take my seal form? And they were often confused with sea wolves, which we talked about in our Lycanthropes episode, which are humanoids who are able to take the form of wolf-headed seals. And so some humans would view the Selkies with fear and suspicion, conflating the two together. I get that. Now, for me, talking about these Selkies as seals, especially if you're going to kind of want to encounter one, depending, like if you're chasing a Selkie and it's trying to run back to the waters, and so now it's taking its seal form, I have this slight break because I have two different versions of seals in my mind. One, I have the very cute kind of flipper on the ball in the circus kind of seal that's about maybe the size of a large dog. And they're a cute seal, and I could see that as a seal, more like a sea otter size. Growing up in California and the Central Coast, we also have the elephant seals, and these things are freaking huge, like 2,000 pounds plus, and they will mess up your day. So, I mean, I could see a selkie fighter or warrior, you know, that maybe in human form is more diminutive, but once they hit that beach and they get into their seal form, they're freaking huge. Right. I could be wrong on this, but I believe that they were typically associated with like harp seals. Okay. Which are a slightly larger seal variant. But in third edition, they did also have listed options for making Selkie player characters. So real quick, as an aside, harp seals are about five to six feet long and weigh 260 to 300 pounds. So they are about person sized for a seal. Yes. And especially, you know, if they peel off that skin. Yeah, that'd put them about human size. That'd put them about human size. Yeah. That said, I want to see one turn into an elephant seal and just wreck a party. (laughs) And of course, they do also have that very charming voice. They are not enthralling the same way that most of the other mermaid and mermaid adjacent creatures are. But they are very comely. They are very uh, persuasive, I guess. Okay the term especially the male selkies very high charisma scores very high charisma scores and as such in third edition their favorite class is the bard strangely enough so it would not be too far out of the realm of believability to have a selkie character who you know for all intents and purposes is human but has the ability to say change shape into a seal Whenever they jump into the water, just automatically treat it as like a druid's wild shape, but with unlimited charges and durations, but with the added caveats that you can't actually change at will. It's very environmental. Okay, yeah, I like that. And that would make for an interesting player character. Right. And that brings us to Kelpies. Kelpies is the one that we haven't talked on yet. Kelpies are also, as I mentioned, in the Fiend Folio in 3rd edition, But they were also finally brought into 5th edition. They are one of the monsters listed in the Tales from the Yawning Portal. In older editions, they were considered an aquatic fae. In 5th edition, they are a plant monster. They still have their ability to charm. It has become sort of a hypnotic gaze now in 5th edition. So it's more of a visual thing than an auditory thing. Okay. I guess they had to shift it because changing it into a plant... Can't speak. Yeah, you don't really have a singing plant sort of thing, unless you're watching Little Shop of Horrors. Well, I was going to say, it could be like a woodwind, like in um, Legend of Sleepy Hollows, where the winds are blowing over the reeds. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I'll grant them that. I won't fight them too hard. I'll give you a freebie, wizards. (laughs) But they do still have that whole... Their whole shtick is to lure you in 
and then to grapple and drown you. One of the things that they do with their charming ability is if you're charmed, you're going to make a beeline straight for them, ignoring all hazards. And if you dive into the water, you are automatically going to assume that you can still breathe. So this is going to be very akin to the Harpy's Charm person where they would try to lure you into a pitfall or a trap of some sort. Absolutely. And in D&D, the most common tactic that they use for this is they will take on their humanoid form, they'll be out in the water, and they will pretend that they're drowning. I'm drowning, please come save me. Right, because if you're not a murder hobo, you want to be heroic, if not both. And so, yeah. And that's how the guys over at Goblin's Corner drown their paladin <laughs> with the Kelpie. <laughs> <laughs> so the Kelpies have a little bit more lore attached to them in the older editions of D&D and also in the novels. Apparently, they are capable of photosynthesis because they are a plant. Okay. And they're capable of asexual reproduction. They just sort of... Bud? Yeah, the bud off sprouts. Okay. If they have proper nutrition, they can generate one to three sprouts per month. Each sprout takes about a month to reach maturity. They also have a scent that is a natural shark repellent. Interesting. And so they would be hunted for that purpose, for extracting that. And there was a region of the world in the Forgotten Realms where... They were basically hunted into extinction by the various seafaring races, primarily for that purpose. In older editions of D&D, Kelpies in their humanoid form could only take on a feminine form. And as okay. a result, female PCs were immune to the charm effects of a Kelpie. Boo. There are different reasons for this. One is that... They were originally created by an unnamed god of the sea who sought to punish men for sailing in her domain without proper observance. By the description, I would almost attribute that to Umberly. Okay. She seems like the sort of spiteful individual who would do something like that. Fair enough. I mean, she is called the sea bitch for a reason. <laughs> Strangely enough, yes. And then another option was that they were created by the Archimental Olhydra, who is the pinnacle evil-aligned water elemental in the elemental plane of water. Now, one of the details that I did like from earlier editions that did not necessarily travel through is that whenever a creature was charmed by a Kelpie, if they witnessed another creature harm the Kelpie, they would fly into a rage and defend the Kelpie against that threat. I love that. That would be that type of charm person, like the protect me. There's an ability you can use in Darkest Dungeon called protect me that a lot of people have. That's kind of like that. That's a guard thing. But yeah, so if it's a simpler charm. And then, yeah, the person just immediately flies to your defense. That needs to be a mechanic that is more used. Now, traditionally, there are other options for Kelpies that would ally themselves with more powerful creatures. They could be negotiated with to serve as guardians, particularly for undersea layers or hidden submerged treasure troves. And one of the Marid, the water genies from the uh, Citadel of 10,000 Pearls, she kept Kelpies as her personal servants. Okay. And then the last one, the one that I think was really, really cool that would warrant a lot more digging. Um, this one is from the novels. There was a megalodon 
Ooh. Later referenced as being a were shark, but a megalodon named Yakovas, who emerged from the sea one day and was wandering around just trying to figure out where he fit in, ended up getting the attention of Umberly and was for a while swimming with Sekola, the god of the Sahagan. Okay. But at one point in the novels, he summons this batch of elder Kelpies who work together and draw the entire population of an island into the sea to drown. Oh. And then he raises them all as sea zombies. Oh my. I like it. Yeah, that one's really cool. Now, translating that whole, you know, where shark megalodon, I could totally see that being like a Goliath and then beast form into the megalodon would be kind of terrifying. Yeah, definitely. A Goliath barbarian that in the water turns into a megalodon. Because I want to see a megalodon rage. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be a blood frenzy. Yeah, exactly. I would like to eat everything. <laughs> everything. All right. I think that's just about it. There was one other thing that I wanted to mention regarding Kelpies that I missed whenever we were talking you know, mythology and lore stuff. Apparently, the Loch Ness Monster is canonically a Kelpie. Ooh, I like it. The reference to Nessie as a plesiosaur is a fairly modern contrivance. Okay. But for the majority of its history is referred to as a Kelpie. And that one of the stories of one of the early Scottish saints, I think it was St. Columba, talking about vanquishing a Kelpie on the River Ness, which is this short little river that comes out of Loch Ness and empties into the sea near Inverness, which Inverness is really just translates to mouth of the Ness. So that is a connection there. Okay, I could buy it, especially since, you know, the Kelpies do have that kind of horse form, too. I mean, I could kind of see that kind of, okay, a river horse. Sure. Yeah, I could I could see that. So, yeah, that was the other thing that I wanted to add in. Okay. But yeah, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Next time, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the various beast spirits in British lore. Uh, so we're going to be talking th about things like the bar guest and the black dogs and the yef hounds and the cat sith and all of those sorts of beasties, predominantly in British lore. Yeah. Lore. We're focusing on British lore because that is what we are the most familiar, familiar with. with. And neither one of us have a whole lot of time to devote to proper research on other cultural mythologies and folktales. Right. I mean, there is a ton. There's uh, within Africa, within Asia, uh, within the Middle East, there is a ton. Problem being, again, it takes a lot to do it properly. And some of these do have divine connections. And we don't want to step on toes by misattributing or otherwise, you know, appropriating such things. With that said, when we do come over to the North Americans, we are also going to touch on things, but we are going to also try to give proper respect when we deal with some of the more native creatures and native spirits. So we do also want to respect tradition and lore with those as well as best we can. Yes. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon. Search Under Common Taste. 
We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where our write-ups go. We are working on some new content to fill out our patron-exclusive content on Patreon right now. We're considering starting up patron-exclusive episodes. That's going to have to happen after James's classes wrap up. Not so we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're not doing that anytime real soon. That is, a, <laughs> that is an eventual project. Yes. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron or coming over to our itch store under where you can pick up our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake or my solo RPG forever home. Finally, we are on discord and you can find a link to our discord in the show notes. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We're so glad you found us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps us increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. And as we start going through this long list and wonderful trail of various cryptids and mythological figures and spirits, if there's something we have absolutely missed or haven't got to yet that you want to hear, send us a message and let us know and we'll see if we can incorporate it in. Maybe give you a shout out. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. All right, stay safe, everyone, and we will see you again in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.